Thank you, Peter. Well, um, uh, 2016 is uh, celebrating 400 years of our greatest uh, living playwright and poet. 1616, he died, aged 51. And uh, five years before that, when he was 46, um, the authorised version of the Bible uh, was published. And the years before 1611, uh, uh, there were a group of scholars, people who are good at linguistics, at theology, and at the English language, who were commissioned by King James to produce this translation. And for many years, uh, scholars wondered how somebody as great as William Shakespeare could not have been included in that group of scholars and literary uh, uh, great people. And so they started to look to see if there were any clues in which they could find the work of William Shakespeare. And they thought, okay, 1611, he was 46. Let's look at Psalm 46, they said. And what did they find? Well, they started working through, and 46 words into the authorised version, they came up with this word. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, and then they went to the end of Psalm 46, and they counted 46 words back to find out what was the 46th word. And what did they find? He maketh wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. And they said, there's Shakespeare getting himself into Psalm 46 with shake and spear. Now, we learn one thing from that, and that is that uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you will find your answer if you look hard enough. <laughs> Particularly because that particular psalm depends on the translation in English, which was already there of the Geneva Bible in 1560. And nobody is suggesting that Shakespeare, aged minus five, had his hand to play in that. We chose the, I chose this uh, psalm as one of my favourite passages but because of a particular event, and that was on uh, September the 11th, 2001. And I was working in a Christian organisation and news came through of the uh, attack on the Twin Towers. Um, and we were called together as a group of people just to try to um, uh, cope with the grief and the trauma that there was there, and the person leading our meeting read Psalm 46. Because it's a psalm for times of crisis. And the reason for that is it was written to commemorate a time of crisis. It's widely believed that this psalm, not written by David, but was written to commemorate the deliverance of Jerusalem from King Sennacherib whom we have a photograph here. Um, uh, and you can see the original in the British Museum. 
And Sennacherib was the leader of one of the two superpowers who existed uh, in that time, 700 years before Christ. He was the leader of Assyria, and Egypt was the other superpower. And in 700 BC, we know this not just from the Bible, but in 700 BC, uh, he uh, decided to invade uh, Judah. And he worked his way through the land and came to the final bastion of the, Israel, uh, of the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, up in the Judean foothills. The whole of the country had fallen to him. And there, with 200,000 or so soldiers, he besieged Jerusalem. And there is a remarkable thing that happened, which is uh, vindicated by his own records as well, that at one night, after the people of Israel prayed... 185,000 of his army was decimated. We don't know how, whether it was a plague, whether it was some sort of corporate fear that took over. And miraculously, the city of Jerusalem was saved. He went back to Assyria, and he then died very soon after that in suspicious circumstances. That uh, story of Sennacherib is uh, commemorated rather poetically by uh, uh, um, Byron, the poet. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the plain. Anyone know that one? Not many. Let's listen to it. The Destruction of Sennacherib by George Gordon, Lord Byron. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea, when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen, like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast And breathed in the face of the foe as he passed And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill And their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still And there lay the steed with his nostrils all wide But through it there rolled not the breath of his pride And the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf As cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf and there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances uplifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord." Well, some poetic license there, but the message is clear. This miraculous delivery of the town, the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not just the capital city of Judah. It was iconic. It was the very place which demonstrated that God had blessed the people of Israel. We don't have any parallel like it uh, today. It was a totem. And it was this close to annihilation, the whole of the land had been taken. What hope 
did the city of Jerusalem have uh, in the face of such overwhelming power? And for the people of Israel who were then in, in Jerusalem, all their certainties were being peeled away one by one. The things that they thought would never change were all brought into question. And fear and panic and hopelessness had gripped the, ta- the, the, the nation. Does that sound familiar? Some relevance to today? There are people for whom the Brexit decision has shaken their foundations. Somehow it's had a deeper effect on those who didn't want it to happen than it has had an uplifting experience for those that did want it to happen. And people are beginning to question what is the future of our nation? If we think about people uh, in places like Syria and Iraq... Can we imagine what it would be like for the certainties of their home, their family, their loved ones, their jobs, the hope of justice and of some sort of uh, uh, rightness in the land all being stripped away? Those of us who've been involved with the Samara appeal get to hear about the most horrendous things bad enough for people to send off their young children to become refugees in Europe rather than to stay and see what's going to happen in their country. Their world has certainly lost its hope. And mass media encourages mass hysteria. Things that we might have taken in our stride before are now blown up so that uh, when some small thing happens... There's somebody who says this is going to lead to something absolutely disastrous, something that we cannot imagine. So we're very, very prone to mass panics about the future. And what's true for us nationally is true for some people individually. There will be some people here today for whom the financial crisis in their own lives means that their certainty about how they were going to retire or what they were going to do is suddenly called into question. There will be some people for whom they have a loved one who's got some deadly addiction from which there seems to be no escape, for whom the certainty of a happy relationship within their family is in ruins. There will be people for whom health is now such an issue that what they assume would be a happy old age is no longer a prospect. Now just think for yourself, what are the certainties in life that you bank upon? What are the things that you assume will be there in order to guarantee your happiness? And when they're stripped away, if you can imagine in your mind, will there be anything left? And that's why this psalm is so relevant to us, because the writer has been there. He's seen the nations in uproar, it says in verse 6. He's seen kingdoms fall. He's seen, proverbially, mountains crumble into the sea, so natural disasters as well. He's been there. And what has he learned that can help us? This is why the Bible is so relevant. It's not a great, it is a great history book, but it's relevant because it speaks to our human condition. And when people are without hope, They are without hope in all the generations that there have ever been. And we can learn something from this. 
Here are four things, just to tell you, in case you wonder when we're on point two, whether it's one of uh, ten points. Uh, um, There are four things that I think we can draw from this psalm for our encouragement today. And the first is that God is there when everything else is stripped away. The psalm starts by saying, God is our refuge and strength. It goes on to talk about God being our fortress. And we can learn that sort of, uh, uh, take that for granted nowadays. But actually, what did the people of Jerusalem believe before their city was besieged? They believed that Jerusalem was their fortress. It was almost impregnable. It was up there in the mountains, and it was very hard to overcome. So people had been thinking, Jerusalem is our fortress. And for us, there may be other fortresses. Our, Our way of life is our fortress. World peace and the power of good to triumph over evil, those are the things that hold on, that we hold on to as being of lasting certainty. Britain's standing in the world, our material prosperity, our health, these are some of the things which we say in our subconscious, those are the fortresses that will stand the test of time. And the truth is, they don't. Now, we can't simulate the loss of the things that are dear to us, but when that time comes, it's an opportunity to put our roots deeper. Difficulty never leaves our faith the same. It either crushes it and destroys it, or it causes us to go deeper, below the circumstances, and to find that there are certainties that will never be snuffed out. And you have to ask yourself, if all were stripped away, would there be anything left? For me, or for, for me and Pam, 1997 was our stripping away year. Uh, in, uh, within six months, I had lost my job. Um, Pam's brother had had a, um, a car accident in which he broke his neck, Uh, And her mother died unexpectedly. Now what did that do? That actually caused us to see that God was there below the circumstances and above the circumstances. And it caused our faith to grow. And sadly for some people, when the testing comes, it uh, it causes the faith to be overwhelmed. But we need to know the truth, that God is there whatever, whenever things are stripped away. Here's the second thing I think we can learn, that the past helps us to understand the present. There's a difference between living in the past and learning from it. We shouldn't live in it, but we shouldn't forget the lessons of it. Notice how the psalmist describes God. He is the God of Jacob. And this is a really strong theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God is someone who actually acts in history. And we forget the lessons of history at our peril. God was with Jacob, and he is the God of Jacob even uh, in the present day, says the psalmist. It's not just the Jewish history, uh, the Jewish tradition to remember What do we do when we come together for communion? We remember the act of God in giving Jesus to die for us and to rise again for our freedom. So we are a people who should remember the past and remember that God has been there 
and has not forgotten us. So when we're facing a tough situation, it's so easy to focus on that difficult situation alone rather than to remember God's faithfulness in the past. There's somebody in this church who <coughs> has a, um, a little uh, journal and uh, in it he writes down all the things that he prays for and he writes down when those things have been responded to by God. Because we can always remember the difficulty, but do we remember that God actually delivers us from the difficulty? Here's some verses that Paul wrote from his own experience. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's the message. The past reminds us of God's faithfulness. And why should he change now? He's been at it for thousands of years. He will not forget us. The third thing, that God is alive and active today, right now, not just in history. The Lord Almighty is with us, the psalmist says. He is an ever-present help in trouble. And there's a good illustration of that, which is uh, the fact that he says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. Now, water is what we need for life. You know, when the uh, scientists are looking to see if there's life on other planets, they look for water, don't they? Water is very powerful. But here's a strange thing. Jerusalem hasn't got any streams of water because it's up in the mountains. It depends upon an aqueduct that comes and was always the vulnerable part of Jerusalem. So what sense do we make of that? Well, if you read the story of Sennacherib, which is in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, which tells the story of how Jerusalem was delivered, it says that the king of the time, Hezekiah, when he saw the crowds coming uh, of the Assyrians, he ordered that all the water sources should be blocked up in the area around Jerusalem. Why? Because if there was a besieging city, they might run out of water before the people in Jerusalem ran out of food. And what this psalm is saying is, we may not have an aqueduct, but we have a God who is there daily, providing us with the needs that we have for life. Job, who knows a bit about suffering in the, New, in the Old Testament, says this, at the end of his experience of having everything stripped away, What's the one truth that he knows? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand at the end. And Jesus' last words in the, uh, on earth in Matthew chapter 28 says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of time. So there is the promise. Now, if you don't know this for yourself, Maybe it's time for you to act, to face up to the truth that when Jesus died and rose again, he did it so that he could be with us day by day, year by year, to the end of our lives and beyond. So there we are, 75% through the lessons to be learned. The last 25% is this. That is that we each need a quiet place to get life into perspective. In the middle of all the turmoil that there is in Psalm 46, 
here comes this sudden message, be still and know that I am God. Now, it's a particularly difficult message today because people don't like to be still. Have you noticed whenever they have a spare moment, wherever we have a spare moment, whenever I have a spare moment, I want to check to see whether or not there's a new email in or whether there's something on Facebook that I need to follow or whether somebody has texted me. And you go into restaurants and you see people you know, waiting for their food to be served and rather than talking to each other, they're just catching up on things. You chat to somebody who's just running past you, jogging away, and they don't reply, and you discover it's because they're actually in another world, listening to some music or whatever. I'm told by those who know about these things that when you do the ironing, uh, you often have something else going on in order to avoid the silence and the boredom that might come from actually having to face up to silence. And I even know people uh, who use a uh, decent visit to the toilet just to check up on whether there's anything electronic that has been trying to get through to them. We become scared of silence. It becomes an alien thing. And here's this that says, listen, there's so much going on around, so much turmoil, you need to just be still, just to be quiet to allow the real truths, the perspective, to come through. And different people will find different ways of doing that. Some like to go off um, uh, for a day of uh, quiet retreat. Others will just use a walk uh, in order to allow the truths that outlast the things that appear to be so pressing to come back to the surface. And what is that truth? That I am God, says the Lord. And we need to have that because all these other truths about God being there and God being uh, 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 ever-present only have a reality when we allow it to have a reality. Otherwise, the noise of the present day uh, will outdo that, to listen and not to speak. Times of trouble test our foundations. Jesus talked about the wise man who built his house on a rock that didn't suffer when the storms came. And we all have storms, whether they're concerns about what's happening nationally or what's going on in our own personal lives. And God wants us to take time to listen to him and to be still. And in so doing, just notice that that end of the psalm says, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. In other words, when you and I make touch with reality, make touch with God, then other people will notice. And that's what our job is as Christians, to be in touch with the Maker, so that other people who are in touch with us also are in touch with their Creator. People say that religion is a prop for those who need it. Religion isn't a prop. Religion is needed when the props have gone. And if you're suffering at the moment or aware of others, see it as an opportunity for growing in grace and faith and not having your faith destroyed. Amen. Thank you, Simon. What we're going to do now, the band are just uh, coming up um, and we're going to have a time uh, just to have that space, that moment, just to reflect.
on the anxieties, the fears, the turmoil, the uncertainties that we may have in our lives or that we may be aware of in others' lives. Maybe it's even on a national or an international scale. What Simon shared there was so helpful, wasn't it? And we do, in our culture today, I think, instinctively avoid that stillness, that quiet place. But we're going to have that now. We're just going to take a few minutes uh, just to have a chance to reflect on those things, to invite God into them and to seek that peace and perspective that he can bring us. So I just want to begin just by praying for us all and then let's take that opportunity together as the band sing those wonderful words from that passage, Be Still and Know That I Am God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for opportunities to listen to you, to remember that you are God, that you know us, you love us, you are in control. Would you prompt us now in what to reflect on and what to bring to you? And would you work in power as we open ourselves up to you now? In Jesus' name. Amen.
prayers this morning. We remember that uh, there is a world that's grieving and we grieve with it as you do, Lord. We grieve over the apparent triumph of extremism, of hatred and oppression in so many countries. Our reading this morning says that you will cause wars to cease and there's a long way to go, Lord. And we pray that that day may come sooner rather than later when there is an end to the violence and the suffering. We pray for those who are striving for peace, understanding and justice, world leaders, but also individuals in situations where there is conflict. We pray that you'll frustrate the people of violence. Turn their hearts, Lord, And if their hearts are not turned, then just turn their actions so that it doesn't have the effect that it has at the moment. Have mercy on the poor and the innocent. We pray particularly that you'll prosper the work of the Samara Aid Appeal. We give you thanks for this shaft of lights with news that the Syrian doctor who was kidnapped last week has been released unharmed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, O Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. And we pray for our nation in a time of turbulence and uncertainty. We pray for our leaders, for Theresa May and for her new cabinet. We pray that uh, they may have wisdom to uphold the principles that are Christian principles of justice and fairness, of honesty and integrity, as they define the new relationships that we have with the different parts of the world. And we pray too, Lord, for the healing of divisions that have been, if not caused by the referendum, and have certainly been brought to light, those who feel disenfranchised and alienated. And we pray for your church that in these situations we may be a beacon of reconciliation and healing and wholeness. Bring us together as a nation with a tolerance of difference and a readiness to listen to difference. And we pray that you will revive and inspire your church to convey the good news of Jesus in the present day in word and deed. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. And we pray, pray for people who are here and those that we love. We thank you for Owen's arrival into the world, Lord, and we thank you that he's a symbol of hope and joy and of new life. Thank you for the innocence of youth and their uh, readiness to accept and to be enthusiastic. And we pray that Owen's family may grow closer to each other and closer to you. And we pray now for those for whom the innocence and joy of life has been drained away. 
Think of those known to us personally who are having hard times, perhaps with poor health or a a broken relationship or stresses at work or stresses because there is no work. And we pray that these people may find their roots in you and find that there is a deeper peace that they can receive. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. And then we pray for those who are on holiday. Pray for those who from this church are at New Wine. And we pray for the youth camps and house parties, which for so many have been a time of uh, really developing their understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And we pray that that may be true this summer too. And that when people return from New Wine or from youth camps or wherever, they may bring some of that growth with them and that it may spread. Time to be still and to know that you are God. Time to find you and to grow in faith. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's say the grace together as we pray for one another here, perhaps thinking of the person who's sitting next to you, as we say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you, Simon. We're going to sing a final song now, and it's a song that reminds us that Jesus is the cornerstone, the stone, the most important stone uh, in the building, the one which is placed right down first as the foundations are established. And it's a symbol, one that the Bible uses, that actually if we build our life around our faith in Jesus and what he has done for us, our life will be a building that will never fall. And I know that's what we would all want for each other and for ourselves. So let's stand and sing that song together.